eat the pork, drink the booze, pork, booze, booze. Eat the pork, drink the booze, pork, booze, booze. Eat the pork, drink the booze, pork, booze, booze. Hello and welcome to America's guiltiest podcast, The Pod People. I am Super Saiyan Jigoku, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets, and I just came back from hell, and, like, despite what people say, I really don't think Detroit is that bad. Damn! Sorry to our listeners in Detroit. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and it's 9 o'clock somewhere. Uh, yeah, it's actually 10 o'clock here. That's right. <laughs> so, this week, we are covering a old Japanese film from 1960 called Jigoku, directed and written by Nobuyo Nakagawa and starring Shigeru Amachi, Utako Mitsuya, and Yuichi Numada. And uh, it is the story of a nursing home that goes to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Cleveland, this was your pick. Sure was. I would love to hear your thoughts on Jigoku. Yes. So I had not seen it before. Uh, None of us have. Nope. Which is this always is a fun. fresh viewing for all of us. It's usually a favorite of mine. I like it when all of us go in blind. Wow. Yeah. Where, where to even begin? Um, uh, probably at the beginning. Uh, our protagonist, Shiro, is in a college class learning about the nine rings of hell and the various other depictions of hell throughout religion. And his friend... Tamura. Uh, Tamura. Tamura-kun. Uh, drops the exposition on us that the professor is Shiro's girlfriend's father and that he's guilty of some war or crimes uh, uh, during war. He's got some sins. He's got some sins he has to pay for. And of course, uh, before that, we're greeted by some incredible intro credits. Uh, I, I don't even know where to begin on those. What, well, we what should. A <laughs> there were naked ladies. There were with and, roses. Uh, you know, I, I made a crack saying, oh, the Japanese are at it again. And then, yeah, my, my defense was like, oh, this isn't, you know, anything that you wouldn't see in the Bond intro. And then, like, the wailing started. <laughs> <laughs> and the weird, like, sudden jazz, and then back to wailing. And more naked ladies. Yeah, and then, like, machine gun fire, and then, like, chicken sounds. It gets, it, it's all over the place. Like, the, the audio to the, the intro credits is nonsense at times. Uh, generally, like, the sounds of chaos and suffering, uh, sort of the running theme. Very hellish. Yeah, we should probably, uh, preface this by saying that Jigoku is the Japanese word for hell, so this movie is very hell-centric. As you said, he's, uh, learning about various depictions of hell, uh, talking specifically about the, uh, the Buddhist belief of hell, which is, I think, uh, eight hells instead of nine, eight hells of fire and eight hells of ice. Also worth mentioning, you compared it to uh, a James Bond intro, and this did come out the same year as the very first James Bond film. Dr. Mm. L? Yeah, came out the same no year. No way. Yeah. That's cool. 1960. What? Different films. Yes. <laughs> it's so shocking to me that this movie came out in 1960. Yeah, it feels the so no good lord it, it feels so ahead of its time in its brutality in its audacity in what it shows in its, in its horniness and horniness much like onibaba i feel like every old japanese movie we pick always ends up being excruciatingly horny yeah, a lot of violence and uh repressed feelings that seems to be a running theme the IMDb trivia said that at the time, this was the goriest movie that had ever been made. I'm not sure the validity of that or how you even track such a metric, but I would be inclined to believe it. Yeah, I'd bite. Cool, if true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd bite. Wow, this film has a lot going for it. So anyway, to get back to the plot, our protagonist Shiro and his, quote, friend, unquote, Tamara. The most uh, sinister man ever. Oh, my God. 
after my heart. Uh, I, lo- I love Tom Mara. Tom Mara is so great. Uh, every time he shows up somewhere, he's like dramatically underlit while everybody else is like lit normally. So he just looks so sinister and, and he, spooky. And he's all always the time. like just appearing. He's yeah. always just there. <laughs> yeah. Which makes it so much he's better. He's given it 150%. Oh, all he the ham and blessing. Overacting. Uh, Yoichi Numata is the yes. actor. He kills it. I love it. It's it's like Palpatine energy towards the end, even. My first note that I took for this film is, why is Tamara Kuhn so spooky? <laughs> that was about 10 minutes in. <laughs> oh, man. So Shiro goes to his girlfriend, Yukiko's house, and he's speaking with Yukiko and her family, uh, the professor. And uh, He's asking their permission to marry her. Yes, yes, uh, Mr. and Miss Yajima. And they are, I think, about to give permission when, who could it be but Tamara <laughs> appears? And he presents the just father. Just inside the house. He oh, yeah, just, already like, he's, he's just in there. Yeah. Well, I think he said, too, it's like, hey, guys, I showed up because uh, last time I came by, uh, y'all didn't answer the door and I got real mad. So I'm here now. <laughs> it's, that's how he framed it. And then, like, he shows up and he, he just slides a photo over, over to the dad, like, saying, like, I wanted to return this to you. And it's a photo of, like, two Japanese soldiers struggling. And you don't, you don't know what the context is for it. But the, the professor suddenly looks quite, quite morose and sad. Maybe it has something to do with his sins, perhaps. Could be. So, uh, they hit the road, Shiro, and good old Tamara. They're driving along, and Shiro says, oh, hey, turn here, I have to make a stop. And Tamara's all like, yo, dog, like, that road's not safe, I don't know about that. And he's like, no, it's cool, it'll be fine. They take the road, and a drunk wanders out into the street and leaps in front of Tamara's car, and they kill him. Uh, and they keep driving, and Shiro feels extremely guilty about it for the rest of the film. Yes. Even though Among Shiro was many, the passenger. many other things. I think that that becomes thematic for Shiro, is that he feels insanely guilty about stuff that he did not do. He is guilt personified, the poor man. He's guiltier than a Catholic. Yep, that's right. They drive on, uh, and we see that the, the drunkard's uh, mother, the drunkard's mother is, like, there and spies the license plate and vows to take revenge. Yeah, it turns out that the guy they hit is, like, the the leader of uh, some, like, Yakuza uh, cell, which... I was really hoping would have more payoff than it did. <laughs> I kind of love, yeah. though, that, like, Tamara, like, nonchalantly throws us. He's like, ah, it's just some, like, like Yakuza guy. It's not a big deal. And then it isn't. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely <laughs> isn't. And I was expecting that to be, like, the whole crux of the film is, like, the Yakuza swear their revenge. Well, because the guy they killed, his mother and uh, and his wife do swear revenge and say, well, the police won't do anything about it, so we'll hunt these guys down and kill them ourselves. So that was kind of fun. It was. It was. I, I enjoyed it. What, what's the next event to really break down in this film? Oh, first off, uh, it's a it's a wacky film. Us not knowing anything made it great, I think. And I would generally recommend seeing it without knowing much. I mean, I think the surprise is not in the first half of the movie. Um, yeah, this movie is basically two movies. I would say so. It's very disparate in the way it's structured. Personally, I thought the first half of the movie was a little slow to get started. Um, I agree. I, I they they had some the some stunning sequences and shots. Like the one that stands out the most, of course, is the bridge sequence. Um, oh yeah, which is just shot incredibly. They have these incredible rotating shots where they go upside down. Reminded me a lot of the shot in Midsummer. Uh, yeah, I would say the style is ma- is the best thing about this yes. movie. I love I love the way it looks all around. Like even the first half, which I would agree with you, Ben. I actually found myself pretty bored for most of the first half. It's shot beautifully. Yes, it is shot really well. I, for some reason, going into this movie, I thought it was black and white. I don't know why. I didn't watch well, anything on it. 1960. It is in color, but it it's still lit like a like a noir. It's like a Japanese noir film, kind of. It's super high-key lighting, or low-key lighting, sorry. It's like lots of negative dark spaces, sometimes unmotivated, but I always thought it was good to look at. Yes. Absolutely. Um, well, would it surprise you if I told you, Tease, that this movie was 
Gaspar Noe's favorite film and one of the main movies that influenced him to make films. No, that would not surprise me. Right? You see the lineage there. The super bright colors and the very grotesque and dark themes and imagery. And surreal stuff. Very abstract. That's what the second half becomes. Like, this film is split into two halves. The first half is a bunch of people being terrible, and then they all go to hell. The first half is loosely plot-driven, I would say, and the second half is more like a sort of abstract Dante-esque descent into hell and witnessing all of the tortures and torments that hell has to offer for all of these different characters. And I thought that was way more interesting than the first half. Oh, absolutely. And I think the second half actually informs the first half in some interesting ways and makes some of that stuff more interesting. I just wish it was paced a little better. Um, Yeah, I normally wouldn't mind the slowness if I was interested in any of the characters. And I know that kind of the point is that all of these people are supposed to be sinners or whatever, Why, hence why they all go to hell. But I still felt like there needed to be some kind of... More Gra- of a hook. grounding motive yeah. to the characters that made me like relate to them in some way. I guess Shiro is kind of sympathetic, but he's just mad stupid. He's just a fucking idiot. It was entertaining to see everyone around him die. Yeah, and he and, and he puts the guilt for all of the deaths on himself when he was like directly responsible for none of them. Well, that's his sin. We should, we should go into the second death. Um, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> which is he's driving with uh, his girlfriend who says without saying that she's pregnant. Yeah, well, Tamura told him in the first in the scene before, like, oh, yeah, you're sleeping with Yukiko. I bet she's even pregnant, huh? And then, yeah, she's wink, wink. right. And then the next scene is she's like, I have something to tell you, Shiro. And he's like, no, wait, first, I have to tell you that I killed a man last night. Like, Shiro, no, you didn't. You weren't driving. You're the one who wanted to go to the police and to Mora said no. Blackmailed him. (laughs) Blackmailed him, yeah. Like, you're not at fault for this, but he's just racked with guilt. So he wants Yukiko to go to the police with him. She really wants to walk so she can, like, talk to him and tell him that she's pregnant and whatnot. But he insists that they have to get there fast, so they take a cab. And the cab driver crashes for no reason, going 25 miles an hour into a street pole. Yeah, but, like, this is post-war Japan, so, like, that that car was was probably made out of, like, melted-down Budweiser cans. So, pretty rickety car. Even so, they weren't going fast enough to really hurt anybody, <laughs> but regardless, the, uh, the driver was pulled. And uh, Yukiko and uh, her unborn child died as well. And uh, of course, now our protagonist (laughs) racked with guilt. Even more so. Double the guilt. That's right. Double the guilt, uh, double the fun. Now, I I have to disagree. I kind of love the first half. And I felt like the slow burn paired wonderfully with the big finish. I felt like I was watching like the, the slow sizzle on a dynamite fuse. Like, just waiting for the big payoff, and boy, did we get it. And uh, during, during like, the first act, I think I've, I felt like there were enough balls in the air. I had enough questions, and I was constantly asking myself, is he already in hell? Because there are little signs, uh, the same way as, uh, like, Jacob's Ladder. The clock is stopped at nine, always. You know, we hear that, that mentioning of the eight rings of hell. So, you know, what's going on there? The way that Tamara keeps appearing mystically <laughs> yes like clearly something metaphysical is going on so that was enough for me i, I was having a great time just waiting for tomo to appear again and meeting all these other like weird characters and like seeing how they progress the stuff with like his dad and mistress and like his mom just in the other room like was pretty pretty fucking insane and the the old painter like 
There's some cool characters. See, like, I felt like I felt like there was a lot of potential, but there's no nuance to any of those things. It's like all these characters we meet at this at this uh, old folks home are just evil because the film requires sinners to send to hell. There's no nuance to it. Like there's even the scene where his dad is like the director of the place and like the the doctor is there and uh this this fisherman brings a bunch of like dead fish that he's just pulled out of the river and they're all just like haha it doesn't matter to us cuz we're not going to be eating them. We're just going to feed them to the old people because better them than us, right? <laughs> and it's just like so evil without... Yeah, they're cartoonishly evil. It's fine. Right, but it wasn't enough to, like, engage me in what was happening. It's like every new character is just a scumbag or incompetent or both. Even, like, the Yakuza thing, like, with these two women who are trying to, to, like, murder Shiro and Tamara for revenge, which is a cool idea, the only thing that comes of that is they also show up to the nursing home, because Shiro doesn't think it's weird at all that all of these people that he knows from Tokyo keep showing up to this old folks' home in the country, because everyone does. But the gangster's wife, who he killed, is just, like, on a bridge pointing a gun at him, monologuing about how she fell in love with him the moment she saw him, but then found out that he was the one who killed her husband. So now she's going to have to kill him. And then she she trips over nothing and falls to her death off the bridge, <laughs> which is very funny. I did think that was very hey, funny. Hey, the, the dummy, like, sequence. Like, it's a great shot. Looks it great. Well shot. It was yeah, a great shot. Like great. once again, my my problem with this movie is not how it looks or how it's shot. I think all of that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But just like they set up this cool idea that was then just deflated by this woman tripping over nothing and falling off of a bridge. I was just like, okay, oh, I guess. she's distraught. Well, it's an old bridge, you know. And I think you make a really <laughs> good point, Tees. Where like I, th- I think nuance is the key word there because this movie, the crux of this movie, is all about camp and vibrancy, especially in the second half. I was hoping for more melodrama than just evil. Yeah. Because then when that turn happens, it's more of an emotional turn than just, oh, these people get what they deserve. Come up and Because I, I think there are so, there are a few like very melodramatic, like almost soap opera-esque moments. And those parts I did think were fun. That's when I stopped being bored. But they were too few and far between because most of it was just like set up for hell. And I think that half of the movie is too long for setup. If they had condensed all of that to maybe like even the first third of the movie and then had done because this is like this movie's almost two hours long. It's pretty long. So I think they could have cut down that stuff a lot and gotten us to hell sooner because that's when shit like really gets cool. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was just so bored in the first half. I wanted to like it more than I did. Yeah, I, I was engaged the whole time. Well, I mean, talk about yeah. some of that stuff that you're into. Like, well, um, well, I mean, okay. So there is something to say for the fact that I'm I'm very visually oriented. Uh, I am an artist uh, by trade, so that can often be enough for me. But beyond that, I was just like frequently like searching for for symbolism in like the framing, why certain characters were appearing. Uh, for instance, the girl who looks uh, mysteriously like Yukiko. Um, appearing, oh, yes. Uh, I, I Sa- was... Sachiko? Is that her name? Um, I believe so. Yeah, Sachiko. Sachiko. Played, uh, played by the same actress, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when Sachiko uh, appears, I, that, that added something else to the mix for me. I was wondering, like, what, what's this about now? Because she looks just like his, his, right. dead, his dead girlfriend, fiancé. All of those little elements had me kind of searching and trying to pick apart what I was looking at and engaged in, in the film. Uh, trying to unravel the sort of metaphysical mystery that was there. Do you think those things got like a satisfying enough payoff though? Because it feels yes like and no. I say that the first half is 
is I I thought was kind of boring and slow. But maybe that's not like the best way to describe it because I feel like it is busy. It's it seems like there's a lot of balls that it, like it's juggling a lot in the air. And I think maybe that's why some of the stuff wasn't as impactful for me because we've got the yakuza guy who they ran over and then his mom and wife plotting revenge. That's one plot line we've got. We've got Yukiko dying and then Sachiko showing up who looks just like Yukiko. What's going on with that? We've got his mother, Shiro's mother dying while his father is having an affair uh, with the like with his like secretary or whatever. That's a whole other thing. And it just feels like there's all of these little plot lines that are happening at the same time and none of them ever have a chance to like resolve in a way that I felt was really satisfying. You wanted them to take root. I'd be yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that because I think one or two of those would have been okay. Oh, and there's like the cop who wants to marry Sachiko, who we find out is like corrupt and like took a bribe to frame somebody for a crime who then killed themselves. And it's like that gets very little payoff, and there's, like, the the people at the old folks' home being mistreated. It's like, take one or two of these things and really develop them before we get into hell, and maybe it would work better. But instead, it just felt like so much at once that I couldn't really—I I couldn't find something to really latch on to that held my interest. What are your thoughts on that? I think Shiro should be that. I recognize that that he's not. He should be like the the fulcrum that this like this film operates around. But uh, it is true. Like his character is not very smart and sort of suffers like some of like the the things that you you see like even today in like anime where like like all the characters are like all the the, the women are just falling falling over like, head over heels for him. Yes. Um. Even though like he really doesn't do anything. Um, he mopes. Sort of a, yeah, he, he sort of he feels a bit like a male insert. But even then, I didn't find him like wholly obnoxious. I did still kind of feel for the guy a little bit because like I see it as like a good trait, a flaw that a good person can have to feel so guilty over things that they're really not responsible for. Like, sure, it's you know, like it's it's yeah, poor guy, you know, like you know, come on, like and hoping and waiting for him to have that realization himself, which he eventually does. At least, kind of, yeah, um, yeah. He gets a good moment where he gets a shout at Tamara, Tamara yeah. which is which is nice. So, like, we we do get that payoff as well uh, during the big payoff. So, like that that largely comes around, but it it was largely the suspense that helped me. I was patiently and quietly waiting, like during like any of those sort of busy or slow moments, because like the film sets you up for something to go terribly wrong. And there's plenty of setup like with the dead fish and the rest. You know that like a lot of people are gonna die, something's gonna hit the fan at some point. That tension was enough for me. Like whether they're cartoon characters or not, they're still about to be a lot of death. And there that is has, that had me excited. And there is, and there is that kind of payoff, but I even that sort of culmination where there is all of that death, it felt kind of like haphazard to me and it didn't Oh, I liked that about it. It, it didn't, was it was it, it was chaotic. I mean it's chaotic it's chaotic, but I mean um I guess narratively haphazard. I wanted there to be some kind of I don't know, like unifying event. Nah, just when it rains, it pours. Like, like what it we all have, goes down at what once. What we have that happens all at once is Shiro's dad's mistress, who has been, who has said to Shiro's dad that his son is cute and I'm going to cheat on you with him. She tells him that, mm-hmm. but the, she tells him like as a joke. But he still acts surprised when she inevitably does it. And Shiro's just going along with it, of course. And Well, I think Shiro was, like, drunk and distraught. Like, I think he was asleep. And, like, he was just, like, covering to, like, try and, like, keep his dad from murdering anyone. Like, No, the, I mean, he might have been drunk and distraught, but, like, he was going along with it. Like, she, like, lured him away to, like, uh, the, the pantry or whatever for some some hanky-panky. <laughs> and, you know, so when his dad shows up, Shiro says, uh, like, oh, it's all my fault, which, once again, it was not. It was absolutely the mistress. And uh, so Shiro's dad murders her. 
kind of the framing for all of this is that the nursing home is having a 10-year anniversary party that for some reason everybody in the village is going to because I guess that's what you do when your local nursing home is having a party. You go and eat pork and eat the pork, drink the booze, pork, booze, booze. All to a really bad marching band. Oh my god, dude, that marching band is hilarious. I loved terrible. it. it. Well, it was, that like, was, pretty it, was funny. it was terrible by design and, and, yeah, right. and perfectly terrible by design, too. Like, it gave me, like, middle school band flashbacks, like, hardcore. Yeah, very, very similar. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Like, all of the instruments out of tune, a couple of them, like, kind of off, off tempo. You know what it, it reminded me of is, like, an, like, an old, like, a classic, like, an old Tim Burton movie. Like, it had that same sort of, like, looks, feels almost like it's falling apart, you know, sort of vibe the cartoon melodrama but anyway uh shiro's dad murders his mistress while shiro watches the yakuza guy's mom shows up and poisons a bunch of dudes with sake including the corrupt cop and like the doctor and like the management and poisons a bunch of people who aren't shiro uh, and kills them. All of the other people in the nursing home die from the rancid fish. Sachiko's father hangs himself because we find out that he was having an affair years ago with Shiro's mother, and so she died. And then Yukiko's parents off-camera throw themselves in front of a train that we just get in <laughs> one line of exposition. And it's like... All of these people just die all at once, and uh, oh, and the the yakuza mom uh, strangles Shiro to death. So it's like all of our characters die at once, but there's nothing that like unifies their death other than that it's all at the same time, and like that kind of haphazardness. I don't, it was off-putting to me in a way that I that I, I, didn't I love really it because like. It's, it's like like this inevitable march towards death, and we we see that like symbolized later on too, just like all of these bodies just being funneled in towards like nothingness. There's something to be said like about like uh, needing to find an explanation in mass death. There's there's something like in you know that psyche like sort of deeply ingrained there. Personally, I find it fascinating. Okay, I feel like it's one of those things where it's just kind of dated. In that, like, Could if be. that was made nowadays, we'd be able to add the conception in the film of hell being outside of time. But because they all have to be in hell in the same time, they right. all have to die at the same time. I feel like it's just one of those things where it happened out of necessity. <laughs> well, how did how did it work for you, Ben? What did you think about how that sort of the I, the transition, the culmination, the, culmin- the culmination that then transitions into hell? Did you feel like that? I thought it was a bit goofy, and like I said, I thought it was a little dated, but it's one of those things where I don't really know if you would need to do it nowadays, but I think overall, seeing all the, the chaos and death just barraged at you was a really interesting effect, because you see it in succession, mm-hmm. just over and over. It really ramps you up to hell itself in yeah. an interesting way. It almost feels like a comedy of errors, but it n- not quite funny enough. You know what I mean? It's so weirdly circumstantial that if it was a little bit more slapstick, it would be funny. Well, I think that's sort of what makes it terrifying for me, at least. Like okay. that it is it's almost funny. It's that that subtle twist. Like I think that's that's sort of the fun of it. I guess I guess for me it was almost funny enough that I was wanting to laugh at it and couldn't quite get there. So uh, I don't know. I felt kind of blue balled by, <laughs> by it. You know, like I I, I was I was waiting. Well, that's to- a way to feel. <laughs> <laughs> that's just me though. But like, let's transition into the second half of the film, which, as we mentioned, is much more abstract and surreal and right out of the divine comedy a descent through hell and all of the torturous pleasures that it has to offer i feel like the second half is where this film really breaks the constraints of the japanese formalism at the time yes of stuff like ozu and i don't know karenku or other ghost stories of the the 50s and the 60s mm-hmm. of japan and really goes past uh, and 
becomes very forward thinking and very ahead of its time in how impressionistic and abstract it is. Yeah, almost Bosch like at times, which is the stuff that I really like. I love how vibrant all of the colors are. I, I was just over the damn moon by those visuals. There are there is some extremely cool and successfully implemented compositing shots yeah. of like weird hellish skies uh, over like lakes of sulfur and marching corpses, uh, and there's those rings of fire. Like, oh yeah, those are really cool. Like where the fire is like swirling inward. Like I'd love to know how they designed that. Like I'd love to know. Be- like there must they must have like had like an air vent, you know, so that like the flames were being like pulled in vortex, towards the center. Yeah, because yeah, it's just it's just like incredible, real like flaming vortex. And it looks so cool. Um, It's one visual like that after the next. The one thing that sort of has to be forgiven, like if you can get past, is the quick cuts, like the replacement shots. um, Yeah. The editing's uh, a little weird, but it's surreal enough that I didn't, like... No, I gave it a quick pass. Yeah. Like, like after the first one or two, like, it seeps in, and, you know, you just sort of take it. It made it feel more dreamlike for me, Mm -hmm. honestly. Oh, yeah. I I think it's just that a lot of those cuts, like, you, you get the cliche where like the character moves a little bit so like it's 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 not clean the jump cuts um, yeah yeah uh with those jump cuts in hell it it works quite well they do one earlier on where i don't think it worked as well where the cab driver is replaced with tamara yes i was um, gonna bring that up too. Uh, before like, the crash uh right before the crash and it, it it feels a little more comical but the once you get to hell it's i think it's jarring and it feels wrong in all the right ways like sure. ben was saying like the formalism starts to break down and it becomes more abstract and i think you start to see a lot of like the in influence of like early soviet montage editing stuff come in because like there's there's very little narrative that happens once you get to hell like it we we see the punishments for all of these shitty characters that we've met and like shiro meets yukiko on the banks of of the the river of the dead um and you know she reveals to him that she was pregnant when she died which we of course all knew and he's like what you were really (laughs) and uh what i did think was funny is that she's like yeah and when i got down here i didn't think that i could i could raise him alone yeah i there was no way that i could raise our child alone so i put her on in a lotus leaf and sent her down the rivers it's like oh so you don't think you'd be a good single parent so you abandon your child in hell (laughs) so the rest of it is just kind of like shiro uh like running through these like various uh, circles and paths of hell, like trying to get to his to his baby daughter. But other than that, it's just like one macabre, gory tableau after another. Well, I, I kind of love how the exposition is delivered. Like it's it's so chaotic. Like just in between the screams and the wails, like occasionally Shiro might come across someone and hear something yeah. else and learn something new. And like personally, like I I just loved that. I think it it made for some just incredible sequencing. I love how the audio will just abruptly cut off, too, and it'll go quiet for a second or, you know, give you a short respite in the chaos of wailing and screaming right before and it picks it, up all over yeah and it, it it's really unsettling and when it happens it, it almost feels like it gives you a second to ground yourself before pulling the rug out from under you once again. I really like those sequences where the demons are, like, smashing people's teeth out. You get these, like, really up-close shots with that those cuts to silence, like you said, of, like, their mouths. And then we, like, see the demons, and then it, like, cuts again, and, like, the teeth are all broken, and their mouths are bloody, and they're screaming. And, like, that juxtaposition is, is uh, really nice. And... And man, let's talk about that effect where the one dude gets flayed. That is like, I could not believe how gory that was for a film made in 1960. Yeah, they use the, the head under the stage, like like mm-hmm. uh, alien effect, where like they pull his body back. And they do it with like the or Like the, they the did with cheating. Ken Forey and yeah. uh, From well, Beyond. It's, it's Shiro's father. Uh, specifically, yeah, I think in that, and his uh, his mistress as well. They both they both get flayed when they uh, they pull her her back. 
like and her head is like you know like like lying there decapitated screaming like it looks so good and how they they cut back to them there's another like jump cut of them normal again and then they scream again and we see that several times where a character gets tortured and then like suddenly they're they're whole again yeah and like they all respond differently. I love how I think it's the uh, the newspaper writer um, uh, like stops oh, yeah, for a I second about him. and like like just sort of breathe like exhales and then starts screaming again. Like it's it's so cool. Like you get that wonderful pause with him and all intercut with like these like just weird vortexes of fire and uh, like like skies of sulfur and uh, rivers of filth and all kinds of just gorgeous and horrifying pools of imagery. blood and l- l- rows of skeletons and people just wandering through hell hollering and screaming and all that shit is fucking rad i i loved uh the the scene of the war criminal dad father character who it's oh, revealed yeah. that went to hell because he uh, stole the last a, sip of water, the last sip of water from a guy's canteen in the war, and so he's he's doomed to you know be thirsty and crawling towards this sort of small oasis in the middle of the uh, that dries up when yeah, he gets close to it, which yeah. is uh, really incredible, and the the shot. Uh, it's overhead of, you know, him crawling towards this and you get all these other people come into view also crawling towards it. And it's one of those, one of the several shots in the second half where it just, it's so impressionistic and surreal that it really adds to the characters in an interesting way and informs the backstory of the characters yeah. in unique ways. I almost feel like you get more characterization from the characters like when they're in hell than when they're introduced, which, you know, is like you said, it does provide some nice context for the first half of the film, but like I wish there was some of that in the first half of the film that would like engross me a little bit more because I like like while I was watching it, it's like, eh, this isn't doing much for me. Well, that's but- one of those things, too. You know, I feel like going back and watching it again, you might glean more yes, out of yeah, that I stuff. Agree. But what, the thing is, as a movie, watching it through the first time, that stuff really isn't very rewarding at the moment, the moment until yeah. you get to the second half. And the second half is rewarding in itself, but also you know, gives context to the first half, which I feel like is good, but the fact stands that, like, that stuff stands on its own is great as well, so. It's true, like, there's, like, this film really comes into itself, I think, in the second half, um, which is why, I mean, I just, I wish it got there sooner, because, like, I was not bored once they got to hell, because, like, there's too much cool stuff to look at. I was reading that apparently this was the last film that this studio uh, produced. They were actually in the process of going out of business while they were filming it, so they had, like, massive late production budget cuts to the extent that, like, a lot of the shots... In the second half where, like, you have limbs coming up out of the ground and, like, people's heads and stuff. Like, the actors who were in that scene, in those scenes, had to dig their own holes because there wasn't budget for, like, set production people to do that for them. So they had to, like, dig their own holes before they shot those. And I think there's something kind of delightfully macabre about... uh, Digging their own graves. Yeah, Yeah. kind of (laughs) digging their own hell holes. (laughs) That's crazy. Well, amazing that, like, that was the result of budget cuts. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, those kinds of effects probably would have been the same results, but that they had to use the actors as labor instead. But, um, you know, like the actors were still willing to do that and like were committed enough to this director's vision that they were like, yeah, I'll dig my own grave. Mm -hmm. Why not? Amazing. I have a question for you guys. Uh, Okay. How did how did y'all feel about the the weird pseudo incest situation with uh, badly is how I feel about it. Uh, (laughs) Hellish even hellish. But like and um, Sachiko and Sachiko. Yeah. Yeah. It added a little bit of 
interesting dynamic to like Sachika's father who was underdeveloped before that and even like Shiro's parents a little bit but we find out that like Shiro is actually uh Sachiko's brother because Sachiko's father uh was having the affair with uh Shiro's mother so he impregnated her and so Shiro is actually his son as well and okay that's interesting but that reveal comes like right when he's about to like make out with Sachiko in hell after he's left Yukiko to die again in hell on like the banks of the river. And then it's like, no, wait, don't kiss her. She's actually your sister. But so then there's like this weird thing where like his fiance and his sister are identical. And and that's never explained. (laughs) That is never once explained. Nope. Like why, why does his fiance look like his sister? Would love to know. Right. Like the idea of like there, there being this strange doppelganger of his fiance after she's dead is cool. But then to just be like, ah, fuck it. It's his, it's his sister actually. Like that was really weird. And that did not, worked for me yeah i mean i think what they were trying to go at was like the horror of not knowing i guess really you know the difference between surprise in your own blood and yep. your love which uh is horrifying in concept but in practice it did not work very well i agree um i want to talk a little bit about how I feel like this movie really influenced both the future of Japanese cinema and the future of a lot of world cinema. Um, I feel like this movie had a big impact. I don't know if it actually did, but it feels like it did on Giallo in terms of use of color and use of expressive abstract imagery i would be very surprised if argento and like fulci had not seen this film Mm -hmm. when they were when they were active yeah it feels like very much in the same vein as well you know you see fingerprints of this movie on movies like house for example you know and how weird and over the top they get and the camp stays throughout both of them we should dig in a little more in terms of the camp. Were you guys ever bothered by any of the overacting? I loved it every time. No, I, I found myself craving it, actually. <laughs> uh, like, specifically Tamura, like, I wanted more of him. He was so ridiculous and cartoonishly sinister and just how he keeps like y'all mentioned he keeps appearing just out of the blue always like he we never see him enter anywhere he's always just there no i loved that like i i think the the camp is some of the best stuff in this movie i think the more toned down stuff which is like a lot of the first half is the more boring stuff i absolutely agree and i think it works because how big the second half and the colors and the the set pieces and the the imagery of the second half is that the campiness works and feels in that world there's nothing more over the top than hell you know on the subject of uh tamara i did feel a little bit cheated by the resolution of his character because as you mentioned cleveland we spent the entire film guessing that he was the devil because he's insanely sinister constantly appearing places literally responsible for like all of the death and stuff that happens around shiro it's like this guy is obviously like supernatural and shiro even in hell accuses him of being that and then it turns out, nah, he was just another shithead dude. He's not the devil or a demon or nothing, because we see him getting tortured at the end. Well, I think he was, was a demon. I was in the impression no. that, that he was. He was reveling in it because he belonged there. No, I, I mean, he for sure belongs there, but when Shiro accuses him of being a devil or the god of death, like... 
Tamara mocks him as like, oh yeah, I'm a devil. I'm the god of death. And then he like sort of stumbles off into the dark, like cackling maniacally. But then we see him being tortured and like calling out to Shiro for help. So I think that that is like pretty definitive that he was just uh, a shitty person who is similarly being punished for his sins. And because I mean, the the voice, the 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 judge's voice or the Lord of Hell or whatever is saying to him as he's being tortured, like you forsook your own humanity and like reveled in cruelty. Mm-hmm. So like. That seems pretty straightforward to me. I don't think he was uh, he was the devil or anything. And that bums me out because I wanted him to be. Yeah, he should have been. He should have been. In the first half of the movie, it's almost questionable whether he's actually human or not. Right. He's the character that's treated with the most camp in the first half and the most over the top and melodramatic to the point where he doesn't feel like he's in the same world a lot of the time as all the other characters. And I like that. But to undercut it with him being human all along and just a villainous human, it's like, oh man. Extremely disappointing. kind of a bummer. How did y'all feel about the very end? I was a little bummed out. I was sort of hoping that this was going to be like a, a, Her- a Herculean or like an like feel a little closer maybe to like Orpheus like making his way out of hell. Um, yeah, and that, that with he, his he with his just... beloved and his his daughter. Yeah, like I was thinking, or or you know, one of them had to pay a cost. You know, like Orpheus looks back, etc. Like I was hoping for something there, like they were that they would be able to escape that reality somehow. Or you know, even that it was just it's more like Dante in that you know he's just being he's seeing hell, he's observing hell, he's being guided through hell. But like that's the weird thing too is like his guilt that we think is, like, a little bit ridiculous because he's not directly responsible for any of these deaths, is his guilt is validated in hell. Like, at the very beginning, when he first gets there, like, the Lord of Hell or whatever shows him the mirror, like, the vortex mirror that, like, shows all of the people that he quote-unquote killed, none of whom he actually killed. And I think I would have been more okay with his insane level of guilt if he had sort of like been complicit or because the film like like uses the word complicit like if, if he had been complicit or if like he had after you know he accuses uh Tamara of being like you know everything that happened is because of you that's like kind of his moment where he takes the blame off of himself and puts it on Tamara and if that was rewarded with you know his, his escape from hell his escape from hell or something yeah. like that like his realization then that would actually like feel justified yeah. but no instead it ends with this incredibly comical shot of this massive spinning wheel with his baby on one side and him on the other side. It looks great. It's like visually, once again, it's a beautiful shot, but it's fucking hilarious because it's just spinning and the baby is crying and he's like reaching across the wheel for the baby, like for the baby just going... Harumi! And, and like, he's kind of like, again. he's like kind of stumbling on the wheel, like he's drunk a little bit. You well, know? yeah, he's like, like, he's fatigued, but like, it's like it, he's it does try- look like, yeah, it yeah. doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the movie just ends. It's like, okay, well, so. Well, no, we do, we do cut back to reality. Uh, mom spaghetti and uh, <laughs> it's um and we see all the corpses right uh, in the silence That's right. first first and 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 then weirdly enough shiro and akiko yukiko yukiko uh shiro and yukiko like dead next to each other or no sachiko sachiko yeah yeah it's like sachiko like dead next to each other like the end yep i respect how bleak the ending is in that you know there's no redemption for the character um or if he was guilty right yeah <laughs> i agree that's part of it well i i feel like the movie kind of puts the blame on him putting the weight of that guilt on his shoulders 
and to make himself a victim is a sin in itself, which I don't necessarily know if I agree with. I don't really He's created think... his own hell. Like, there is something to be said for that. Yeah, but I think that's way more interesting that he feels like he deserves hell when he doesn't, you know? Like, hell in this sense is supposed to be a place of judgment where your sins are weighed against your soul and, like, you are punished for your sins. But, like, we fucking see everything that happens in this movie and like he's not at fault for the yakuza guy getting run over he's sure as shit not at fault for yukiko and the baby dying he's not at fault for the yakuza guy's wife tripping and falling off of the bridge he's not at fault for yukiko's parents throwing themselves in front of the train he's not responsible for any of it but when he gets to hell his guilt is validated and he is being he is told that he is guilty of those things and like that just doesn't seem it doesn't seem i I have a counterpoint believable so the sin is not being responsible for it it's him standing by and doing nothing in the face of all this atrocity happening so when he goes to hell his version of hell is observing everyone else's hell and not being able to do anything about it i can vibe with that I think it's a bit of a reach, but it's an explanation that I like. If he wasn't, like, explicitly told by the Lord of Hell at the beginning of that sequence that he is responsible for the deaths of these people, then I think that that reading would be more implicit. And I I think that that's a, a, a fair point. I just don't think that that is how the film really presents itself and that's what i find a little bit frustrating it's a little abstract in that sense here's a problem none of us have a frame of reference for the buddhist hell that's true like and i think that upon reading some more literature about the eight rings and learning more about those eastern concepts would give us more fulfillment watching this film as well like I'd be willing to bet that there is more symbolism than just, like, nine o'clock being, like, the ninth ring, like, the the sort of the ring outside of hell or or however you want to perceive it. I want to think that there's more to it than many of those, like, well-framed shots in the early sequences if there isn't more interplay with some of the, the philosophy and theology behind, like, Eastern views of hell. I'm, That's a very I'm fair point. Quite keen to learn more and to see what else is going on there? Because frankly, none of us have that perspective. And I, I'm, I'm very willing true. to bet. I am very willing to bet that 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 much of the first act of this film, as well as the second act, is enriched by that knowledge. It's possible. I will invite. Our listeners, if you happen to be knowledgeable, versed, versed in Buddhism and the Buddhist interpretation of hell, and if there is uh, are things that we are missing, by all means, reach out to us, DM us on Twitter, and let us know. I would be I would be very curious because that's that is very possible. Our reading comes from limited knowledge of these things mostly western but mostly western i'm also trying to approach it from just a uh, a narrative and storytelling perspective and why these things do or do not work for me from that perspective but you're right it is a very western perspective do you guys want to rate this sure yes uh cleave you start you pick this yes movie. your pick all right so Shiro's a little obnoxious, and the ending didn't come to fruition the way I had sort of hoped. But apart from that, for me, this film is pretty damn near ideal. For me, in particular, I, I just cannot stop gushing about the visuals. It is it is one of the more gorgeous films I've seen. And the themes as well, like, are, are everything I love and adore. Any, any sort of venture through hell is always keen on my radar. There is so much that this film dares to do, and there's so much that it does right. I'm going to give it a, a 4.5. I want to give it a 5. I, I I really do. But if Shiro had been just a little more, just a little smarter of a character, if, if, if it had just been a little bit easier to, to like Shiro, the film could have revolved around him better. But god damn, it's, it's such a gorgeous movie. It's so fucking pretty visuals are a five but it's it's overall it's a it's a 4.5 ben what about you well i think you make a lot of really good points there cleve i think 
the the problems I have with the the pacing of the first half of the film are really outshined by the incredible audaciousness and expressiveness and really bright colors of the second act and the hell sequence. Um, I think it's really incredible for its time. It's really ahead of its time. It's surprisingly brutal for a movie from 1960. My jaw was on the floor through most of it, honestly. I thought it was incredible. And I, while some of the narrative bits felt a little underwhelming, I think that didn't matter as much to me by the end of the movie because I think it more than makes up for it in style and presentation and even in the first half sequences like the bridge sequences and how they're shot and the creativity of the the filmmaking in that respect it more than makes up for it i'm gonna give it a strong four i would definitely recommend checking it out uh man well i i really wish that (laughs) i liked this film more i think that you're right cleveland like if we were rating it solely from like a visual and stylistic perspective it is near perfect just like the way it's shot is beautiful and the the production design and lighting are incredible and like even in the first half and then just like become when it was made become like my wet dream in the second half yeah it's it's remarkably ahead of its time i was very i very surprised continually in this film that it came out in 1960 because especially when you compare it to a lot of the other horror movies that were coming out around this time like you're looking at stuff like psycho which like psycho was ahead of its time but compared to this you know is in many ways remarkably tame or even peeping time Tom Peeping came out Tom, the same year, yeah. which, you know, was so controversial in Britain that, you know, Michael Powell got banned from making movies for a while. And if you compare the two. Yeah. Once again, fairly tame in comparison to Jigoku. Man, unfortunately, though, I was just so bored and uninterested for like the first close to hour of this movie and i was enraptured by the second half but going to watch it again i would know that i would just have to sit through that first half that just did not hook me on any kind of meaningful level overall still positive but i'm gonna give it a three out of five because um I just wish we got to hell sooner and were there longer. (laughs) Um, Even so, that will give Jigoku an average of 3.8 out of 5 pods. We should mention that this film is in the Criterion Collection, although sadly has not been restored yet, like many Criterion films have. But when it does... I'm sure they will get around to it at some point. They've been pretty continually upgrading all their... You know, DVDs to Blu-rays. As much so. as as much as I didn't enjoy the first half of this movie, I would probably watch it again once it gets a Blu-ray oh, Criterion sign edition. Me up, I'd be right there. Because I would love to watch the commentary hot damn. on this movie as well. Yeah, that I would be curious oh, yeah. about that as well. That might make it a little bit more interesting for me to sit through. Another thing I didn't mention, but I did make a note of, is uh, there's lots of theremin music in hell, which (laughs) I thought was very fun. Um, Next week, we're going to be doing another guest episode uh katie from lamley optic who has joined us for uh the shining and the lodge in the past will be joining us for a film of her choice the um i believe most recent lars von trier film uh the house that jack built which i have not seen but have heard a lot about and if I know Lars von Trier, we will surely all be miserable by the end of the movie. <laughs> We're going to have a great bad time. It is going to If it's anything like other Lars von Trier movies, it'll be the best misery I've ever experienced. <laughs> and I think this will yeah, this will be our first Lars von Trier on the podcast yeah. too. So, uh, I'm really excited to hear some of Katie's insights on that movie and hear why she chose it because she is much smarter than we are, and, <laughs> and Lars von Trier is a very 
very, very heady director. So that should be fun. Uh, so tune back with us next week to hear that. Uh, before we sign off for the evening, Cleveland, what does the sponsor shelf have for us on this fine evening? Oh, fuck. Uh, yeah, the sponsor shelf. Um, uh, upon the sponsor shelf, as I gaze with my my tiny tiny nostrils i can see the many the many smells and flavors that have greeted us today uh, all all beyond comprehension and knowing but i will try to to turn these these strange and uh uh fearful sponsors into a language that you may understand and that language is thus forsooth child There is a place in Nevada that grows the finest corn. And just to a town to the right of that is the, just the prettiest pasture you've ever seen. And upon that pasture sit some cattle. And those cattle, they eat from the corn. And that corn, oh boy... <laughs> Does it give you the finest ranch dressing that you would ever imagine? <laughs> the finest ranch dressing that you could ever imagine. And this ranch dressing is Barkles, Bobbles, and Beets. Straight off the cow's teats. <laughs> Barkles, Bottles, and Beets. Straight off the cow's teats. You can't believe it. Until you've tried it with your own eyes. It's for ranch dressing for the the whole dimension. For those times when you've wanted to suck your ranch straight out of a cow's nipple. It's the only way. Borples, bobbles, and beeps. <laughs> Thank you. And have a wonderful evening. All right, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. If you like the show, do the ding-dang thing and go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. We would very much appreciate that. You can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and check out our letterbox at letterbox.com slash PodPeoplePod where you'll see a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at DeepStateOzzy. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. And I'm occasionally tweeting for LightArc Studio as we further our progress on It Stares Back in Early Access on Steam. Go check it out. It's spooky strategy, and it's all for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to strategize when you're scared. I know. That's what makes it so much fun. Uh, for real, though, we've put our uh, hearts and souls and lots of time uh, into the visuals, the design, the story, the music, the mechanics, the gameplay. It's great. And uh, uh, we're quite proud of it. You can also see some more of my own spooky visuals and sometimes not so spooky. Not everything I paint is scary. Uh, on ArtStation, just search Cleveland Mosier and I'll pop right up. Uh, yeah. And uh, feel free, peruse. Uh, or shoot me a message if you're looking for a commission. I'm always happy to uh, do some doodles for some noodles. Noodles. That's right. Because we know you spend your money on ramen exclusively. It, it's not. You're not wholly wrong. Uh, you're more. <laughs> you're more right than wrong. I uh, most of my funds do go to noodles. You know, maybe, maybe that will change one day. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Tune back in with us next week. And until then. I'm going to strap myself onto that wheel and go for a spin. Harumin!